0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 through 16. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. And this early epistle is written to encourage these believers and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Paul began this letter by giving thanks to God for them, and then Paul commended the wonderful example that these believers had set for others to follow as they excelled in faith, hope, and love, as they passionately shared the good news of Christ with the many lost souls around them, and then as they turned away from worthless idols and served the Lord God Almighty from the heart based on their intense love for Him. Praise the Lord. And here in chapter 2, Paul's been defending himself and his ministry and his motives. And he's done an excellent job of it. Why? Because he, he could appeal to what the Thessalonians already knew to be true about Paul and his friends because they had seen these things firsthand. So Paul says, hey, you know this, our our hearts are clean, our motives are clear. We gave the truth of God to you. We served you tirelessly. We suffered for the truth. We loved you with fervor and passion, and you saw all this very, very clearly, and God knows anyhow, and there's no denying those things. So Paul shuts down all the haters with the truth. Last time, Paul commended the Thessalonian believers for how well they welcomed the Word of God into their hearts and into their minds and into their lives, and how they endured suffering for the glory of God based on their firm conviction and and love for God. And Paul ended by mentioning the Judean Christians and how they suffered at the hands of the Jews. And let's look at what that says, uh, what he says next in verse 15. We'll begin in the second part of verse 14, just for context. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, the Jews, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So always, uh, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So look, Paul's just said how the Christians in Thessalonica are copying the churches in Judea. And just as the Christians in Thessalonica are suffering at the hands of their own brethren, the Gentile non-believers... That's just following the same pattern that happened to the Christians in Judea at the hands of the Jews, the the Jewish non-believers around them. And now, Paul talks a little bit more in depth about them and about that. Note this. Paul isn't picking on the Jews here, not at all. He's simply stating the facts of what happened. Paul actually brings a number of charges against the unbelieving Jews in these two verses, but please understand that What is true of them here could be true of any unbelieving person or group of people, and we are no better than them. Very important to understand. So no, Paul definitely is not being anti-Semitic here, no, because he himself was a Jewish man. And Paul clearly loved the many unbelieving Jews all around him, and he earnestly desired, passionately desired their salvation, and we should feel the same way. See, Anti-Semitism and racism of any kind is evil and it is sinful. And it should never, ever be a part of any person who claims to love the Lord. Okay? So, got that off the table? We're clear on that, right? We already knew that. At the same time. Paul will indeed speak the truth. And so Paul starts off by saying, the unbelieving Jews killed the Lord. That's something that's mentioned a, a number of times in the New Testament. And while the actual execution was carried out at the hands of the Roman soldiers under the command of Pilate, the people behind it all were indeed the Jewish leaders. Remember that? Remember what happened? Jesus, if you remember, was killed at Passover. Passover celebrated Israel's deliverance from bondage in Egypt. So once a year on Passover, Rome would allow one prisoner of the people's choice to be set free. Well, Jesus has already been illegally arrested and accused and charged and tried and mocked and so on. And now he's brought out before the Jewish crowd and they are given a choice. Who do you guys want to be set free? Jesus or that murderer Barabbas? Barabbas! Say what? I mean, Barabbas wasn't just another common criminal. No, Barabbas was a well-known Bad man. We don't know much about his background, but according to John 18.40, he was a robber. And then Mark 15.7 tells us that he was a rebel and a murderer. So Barabbas was a very bad guy who was a severe threat to the safety of the entire population. But guess what? Jesus, on the other hand, was perfect. So you have a choice, Jesus or Barabbas, to set free. We want Barabbas as the chief priest, stirred up the crowd. What do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. Wow, that's what happened. That's what they said. How great is their sin? And so they killed the Lord. They led the way in killing our Lord and our Savior. But please don't be too overly hard on them, the Jews, because We're no better than they are, not in any way. And aside from the amazing grace of God on our lives, they are us and we are them. I mean, we're all in the same boat, right? Desperate, wretched sinners in need of mercy, forgiveness, amazing and undeserved grace. But that said, they do bear responsibility. And the reason I believe Paul and Peter in Acts points this truth out to the Jews so often, and the reason why Paul points it out here yet again, you guys killed Jesus so that they would see their great sin and then repent of their great sin. You are great big sinners. You killed Jesus, but guess what? Jesus is a great big Savior. Amen? Anybody? (laughs) Right. And He forgives all who surrender to Him in repentant faith. But again, they were the ones who bore most of the responsibility for killing Jesus, but they weren't the only ones who killed Jesus. No, the Romans also killed Jesus, and as we ourselves know, Jesus went to the cross willingly because of our sin as believers, so we too are culpable in this. But you know who is the most to blame for the death of Jesus? God. God the Father. God Killed Jesus, the Father killed the Son, so we who believe could live isaiah fifty three ten yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, He has put him to grief, so it pleased who to bruise Jesus, the Lord God. Who has put him to grief? God the Father has put him to grief. And again, there were many who were responsible for Christ's murder, including us, because of our sin. Oh yes, but God was in ultimate control of the entire situation. And God ultimately was the one who put him to grief and crushed him and killed him in our place as believers. That's how much he loves us. But that didn't get the Jews off the hook for what they did. And Paul wants them to face what they did so they could then repent of what they did. And that's important, right? I mean, you have to see your sin. You have to see your great and terrible sin because that's when you can then face your sin, have your heart ripped open because of that sin, and then go to God with that sin in faith for true mercy, forgiveness, and amazing grace. Look what Paul says in Acts second. The Jews killed their own prophets. It's true. I mean, they killed Jesus, and they also killed the prophets. And again, yeah, that's correct. And that's been their general attitude toward the messengers of God throughout their history. Kill them. Look, the word prophet literally means to tell beforehand. And it describes someone who speaks God's message. Someone who's especially endowed or enabled to receive and deliver direct revelation of the will of God. The Old Testament had many prophets. There were major prophets and then there were minor prophets. And note that the minor prophets aren't minor because they are unimportant, not at all. They're called minor prophets because their books are relatively smaller in size when compared with the larger books of the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now these prophets were called by God and God spoke to them and they proclaimed what God told them and sometimes this included things that were to come. But note that whenever they did that, their prophecies always came to pass. Prophets like Jeremiah, Elijah, Ezekiel, Joel and many others had historical events prove that they were indeed sent from God and that they spoke the words that God himself had given them to speak. But while they sometimes foretold future events, the main part of their prophetic ministry was to preach God's revealed Word and to call the people to repentance. Note that there were many false prophets in the day as well, but those false prophets were very easy to find because their words didn't always come to pass. And what was the penalty of being a false prophet? Death, right? So, I mean, you better take God's Word seriously. You better not play fast and loose with the Word of God. His revelation to His people is very, very serious and it's not to be trifled with because much is at stake. Now question, are there prophets today? No. (laughs) Because prophets aren't needed today now that we have the full, complete, fully sufficient revelation from God found in His written Word. But until that time came, until we had the full, final, complete, fully sufficient, written Word of God. Prophets, until that time came, prophets were important and prophets were necessary. Look what happened to the majority of the prophets of God. What's it say? They were killed. Now, if you check Israel's history regarding her prophets, hey, which of the prophets did they not persecute? Every one of them. Every one of them. Jeremiah was stoned to death Isaiah was cut in half with a wooden saw. Joel was smote in the head with a staff and died two days later. Amos was tortured and then he was put to death. Habakkuk was stoned by the Jews in Jerusalem. Ezekiel was murdered because he rebuked a chief of the Jews for worshiping idols. Joash the king slew Zechariah in the temple... Think about that. In the temple, you see the point? And the ones who didn't die as martyrs, they were all persecuted greatly for speaking God's truth that saves to the people, specifically to the Jewish people. Let me just remind you a bit about one of the prophets, Jeremiah, just so you understand how most of them, all of them, were treated. Jeremiah was a prophet of God to the people of Judah, and to the city of Jerusalem from approximately 627 to 586 B.C. The purpose of Jeremiah's message was to turn God's people from their sin and back to God, which is what they desperately needed, and also which is what that was truly best for their lives and what was truly best for their souls. He's doing them a great favor, see, by speaking the truth of God to them. But look, they hated it. And when he spoke... Nobody seemed to listen. And it didn't matter how passionately Jeremiah urged these people to repent and turn to God. They didn't budge. And that not budging happened for nearly 40 years. Talk about depressing. Hey, I've got a message to you from God Himself. And it's vital that you pay attention to these words. It's vital that you put these words into practice. Because if you don't, then the nation is going to fall. And Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So listen up. Listen carefully. This is from God Himself. Listen up. And no one listens. But look, not only did the people refuse to listen... But the words that Jeremiah spoke made the people extremely angry. In fact, Jeremiah has been known as the weeping prophet because he's crying all the time. And he lived a life of terrible conflict and pain because of his unpopular message of truth. For example, Jeremiah was threatened, tried for his life, put in stocks, forced to flee from King Jehoiakim, publicly humiliated by a false prophet, slapped in the face Thrown into prison, thrown into a well, taken to Egypt against his will, rejected by his family, rejected by his friends, rejected by his neighbors, rejected by his audience, rejected by kings, and this man stood alone, except for the fact that the Lord God Almighty was on his side. So, speaking God's message and weeping over the fate of his people, Jeremiah, humanly speaking, stood all alone, and he suffered greatly, and he wept much prophet. A man named Charles Feinberg had this to say about Jeremiah. He said, "...many are agreed that his greatest contribution to posterity is his personality." By birth, a priest. By grace, a prophet. By the trials of life, a bulwark for God's truth. By daily spiritual experience, one of the greatest exponents of prophetic faith in his unique relation to God. By temperament, gentle and timid, yet constantly contending against the forces of sin. And by natural desire, a seeker after the love of a companion, his family, friends, and above all, his people, which were all denied him. Listen to this his life may be characterized as being one long martyrdom. We find that God didn't permit Jeremiah to marry as an illustration to the people of Judah. From what we know, there's absolutely no indication that he ever had any followers, that he ever had anyone who really heard and who really heeded his message. Hey, Jeremiah! I want you to preach for me. I want you to speak my words to the people. What do you say? Yeah, Lord, sounds good. I can't wait. Oh, and by the way, Jeremiah, you can't marry. You're going to suffer terribly. You're going to weep often. You're not going to have any followers. The people will hate you, and they will reject you, and they will kill you, and no one's going to listen to you. That's Jeremiah. Church tradition says that Jeremiah was stoned to death in Egypt by the Jews. Why? For being a prophet of God and for preaching the truth of God to the people. And that, the fate of Jeremiah was the same basic fate of all the prophets of the Israelites, the people of God. Repent! No! Repent! You're a dead man! These are facts. They killed the Jews and they killed their own prophets. That's what sin does. That's what rejection of God and His Word leads to, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile. doesn't matter. Third, look, just as unbelieving Israel so frequently slew the prophets who spoke the Word of God, Israel has also refused to tolerate the apostles and the early Christians who preached the gospel of God's grace to them. And we saw that very clearly in the book of Acts. As Paul says here, and they have persecuted us. That's right. They have persecuted us. You remember, right? Paul and his friends began with Paul. In Acts chapter 9, Paul got converted. He immediately gets to serving his good God. In verse 20, he preached Christ. And in verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him. In verse 29, Paul spoke boldly in the name of Christ. And again, the Jews attempted to kill him. In chapter 13, Paul preached in Antioch. By the end of the chapter, the Jews stirred up all the people. They raised up a persecution against Paul and they kicked him out of the city. In chapter 14... Paul preached boldly in yet another city. Verse 5 tells us that the Jews stirred up the people and a violent attempt was made against Paul to abuse and stone both he and his co-workers and they had to flee the city. Later on in that chapter, verse 19 tells us that the Jews from Antioch and Iconium traveled to Lystra where Paul was. They incited the people against Paul and then they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city. In chapter 17, it was the Jews who stirred up the crowds against Paul in Thessalonica, which led him to being ran out of town. And then in Berea, the Jews from Thessalonica went over to Berea and stirred up the crowds against Paul yet again. Later on in chapter 21, Paul was beaten by a mob, a Jewish mob, and then arrested. Remember that? Paul had made his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And when Paul was in the temple, verse 27 says that Jews from Asia stirred up the crowd and laid hands on Paul. They then lied and made a false accusation about Paul. And then as the city was disturbed, the people seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. They began beating him, trying to kill him. The Romans ended up arresting Paul and they then had to move Paul from Jerusalem over to Caesarea. Why? Because a number of Jews had made an oath to kill Paul. And it's all very relentless. It's, it's relentless, this hatred of Paul and his friends by the Jews as they sought to share the good news of Christ with the lost Jews first and then with the lost Gentiles. The Jews hated Paul, the once model Jewish man who had converted over to Christ and then who sought to turn everyone that he could to, to saving faith in Christ They hated him. They vehemently hated him. They persecuted him. They followed him around in order to hurt him and in order to stop him. They wanted him dead and they did all they could to end Paul and to end his ministry along with the ministry of his friends. Note that That was true for the unbelieving Jews of that day persecuting the people of God, but it was also true of many of the unbelieving Gentiles because the persecution of those in Thessalonica occurred at the hands of the Gentiles primarily. So it began with the unbelieving Jews in the early church there in Judea, but it certainly didn't end with them. I mean, think about it, right? Christian persecution is happening all around the world even today Right, And it's coming from everyone. And I'm convinced that it's going to get worse, but that's good. Because that will give us an even greater opportunity to shine brightly for Christ. This is what happens to God's people, see. This is what happens. And it can come from Jewish unbelievers. It could come from Gentile unbelievers. This is the reality nonetheless. And it's our reality too. As Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How many? All. So that's a fact. This is ironclad. This isn't left up for any kind of discussion. This is the truth of the matter. Some might look at this and say, Well, that's okay because being godly isn't my desire. Just being saved is my desire. Or my desire is very simple. To be saved from hell and to go to heaven, that's it. I have no desire to be godly, so I'm not going to be persecuted. Whatever. (laughs) Here's the thing. True Christians desire to be godly. See? The passion of the true child of God is to glorify God. The passion of the true child of God is to be like God because that pleases God. In the heart of every true believer is an eagerness and an earnestness to be godly. And if you don't have that desire, then at the very least, something is drastically wrong. Why? Because Christians desire to be godly. The word desire refers to a passion that flows up from the heart, but that's also an act of decision of the will. So it's a thought out thing, it's real, and it's a lasting thing. Desire is in the present tense, which means that this is an abiding determination to live a godly life. That this is a persistent passion which manifests itself into a lifestyle. Here's the idea. I love my Lord. Right? Christians love Him, right? I love my Lord in light of who He is and in light of what He's so graciously done for me. And because I love Him, then I earnestly want to please Him. And because the godly life pleases Him, then I make it my lifelong aim to be growing in godliness. See how it works? That's the way it works. The word godly speaks of reverence and awe towards God that reveals itself with action that flows up from the heart and that then reflects that reverence and awe and love. It speaks of those who have a firm resolve to live a life that's a combination of authentic faith in God and appropriate behavior that reflects God. In Christ indicates the source of this life, personal faith in Jesus Christ. And here, Paul's really drawn a line in the sand that if you're truly in Christ, if you're truly saved, if you're a true child of God, then you'll desire to honor and revere Him with your life, and you'll desire to honor and revere Him with your actions, and look, you're also going to suffer for it. But so be it, again, because suffering isn't going to quench our thirst for pleasing God with a godly life, right? Right? I mean, look, we know we're going to suffer for pursuing godliness. Biblical fact, that's a fact, but we still pursue godliness because, because pleasing God far surpasses the pain that comes from pleasing Him. And so Christians seek to revere and honor God with a godly, Christ-like, holy, sin-fleeing, God-pursuing life. It's, it's who we are, it's what we do, and the result is persecution. 1 Peter 3.12 says the same thing. Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. In other words, as a Christian, you shouldn't be surprised by suffering. And not only should you not be surprised by suffering, but you should expect suffering as a Christian. When the Apostle Paul was saved, our Lord said, Paul, your life's going to be so easy now. No. Our Lord said, I will show him how much he must suffer. For my name's sake. Suffering in some form for the Lord's sake is on the calendar of every genuine believer. Both in the early church and also today. From whom? From where? From everyone. And from everywhere. And it began with the Jews, yes, but as Christianity spread to the Gentiles, persecution then came from the unbelieving Gentiles, and, and that covers everyone. Now, sometimes those trials ebb and flow, and in some places the persecution is more intense than in other places, but it's a reality nonetheless, and the Bible is clear about that. I mean, come on, should any of us be surprised when the world mocks Christians? Should any of us be surprised that the world hates Christians? Should any of us be surprised that the world acts out against Christians when they killed our Lord and Savior? The world lies under the sway of the evil one and we're children of the holy one. You see any issues that might come from that? And Christians who are really living for the glory of God will become an obvious target of the enemy resulting in persecution. Error doesn't like truth. Wickedness doesn't like godliness. And Satan doesn't like God's people who are shining brightly for Christ. So be it. For it's an honor to be counted worthy of suffering for our good God. So look, they killed the prophets, they killed Jesus, they killed the disciples. Persecution throughout history has been our reality, and we should expect it today. Don't avoid it. Don't run from it. No, expect it, face it, and glorify God in the midst of it. Hey, I don't want the easy life here. I I don't want the easy life here. When I became a Christian, I joined a war. And I want to fight well. Anybody? Come on. Our best life is later. It's not here. Praise the Lord for that. Now's the time for the battle and the pain and the struggle and the persecution for shining brightly for Christ in the midst of all this darkness. Let's be ready for it. And let's consider it an honor to suffer for Him, our God, who saves undeserving sinners like us. Whatever, wherever that struggle that persecution comes from fourth paul says that they persecuted us and look they don't please god and that's true not only for unbelieving jews who persecuted paul and his friends but for everyone who rejects christ as lord and savior they don't please god and this is devastating why because the aim of our lives should be to please god to glorify God out of our intense love for God and to miss this great aim is to miss the whole purpose and meaning of life. See, to miss this aim is to live a meaningless life, a worthless life that ends in hell instead of heaven. So, not pleasing God is serious indeed. Second Corinthians 5.9 says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. And that's the goal. Now, there are some people that you simply cannot please. But the good news is that you can please your amazing God, Amen. Yes, you can. That's good news. Note that only Christians can truly please God. Hebrews eleven six says, "Without faith, it's impossible. Without saving faith, it's impossible to please God." The faith mentioned there is saving faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, because of who He is and because of what He did in our place on the cross. As believers. Right? Jesus is God the Son, who left heaven and came here. 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as a believer's substitute for sin. And three days later, he rose up from the dead. What's the big deal about that? This. Sin banishes every one of us from heaven and condemns us all to hell. But Jesus became the believer's substitute for sin. The wages of sin is death, which is not just physical, but spiritual and eternal. Hell forever. But Jesus, because He's both God and man... He paid the wages for every true believer on the cross as he suffered, faced God's wrath against our sin as believers, and died for that sin so that we who believe can live, be forgiven of all our sin that condemns us, be saved forever, and go to heaven instead of hell, all because of Jesus. And good news for everyone who puts their true faith in Him, in His person and in His work, for everyone who surrenders to Him in repentant faith, and it's real, they will be saved. That pleases God, obviously. And now, as God's dearly beloved children, our aim is to please Him in every way because we love Him and so we do what we can right to obey him to honor him to put him first in our lives to follow his word to share him with others and to serve him because we love him so very much that's what matters and that's what lasts and that's what brings true joy back to us this is what we were created to do and it's awesome it's awesome doing what you were created to do So you come to him in saving faith, and you become his child, and that pleases him greatly. And then you live out your faith in growing measure, and that pleases him greatly too. And in return, we're filled with all the blessings that come when we're truly doing what we were created to do. Not so non-believers, and not so the Jewish unbelievers who persecuted Paul and his friends. Instead, for them, for all who reject Christ, a meaningless life, a life uh, uh, of emptiness think about that that's true for every non-christian every one, uh, meaningless think about it. worthless unlasting, empty, void futile That's true for everyone who rejects Christ as Lord and Savior. Won't you turn to Christ in repentant faith today and be saved and find the one who gives true peace and hope and purpose and joy and forgiveness and meaning today? They don't please God. No, they please Satan. And that is devastating. True for the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day. True for every non-believer today. Fifth, Paul says that they, the unbelieving Jews of his day, who persecuted God's people, they are contrary to all men. What does that mean? The word here for contrary means to be hostile toward, to be contrary to, and to be opposed to, as if you were an adversary. And while we know that those unbelieving Jews were certainly contrary to Christians, how were they contrary to all men? Here's why. Because as a whole... These guys were religious hypocrites. Their religion was all external without any real heart. They didn't care about the lost around them. In fact, they hated the Gentiles, the lost Gentiles around them. And instead of drawing people to the one true God, they caused people to run away from the one true God. Contrary. Lord help us to never do that, by the way. See, we are called to be bright lights, we are called to be salt, we are called to be Christ's ambassadors, we are called to be evangelists, we are called to be the aroma of Christ, the good aroma of Christ, we are called to be living letters that are known and read by all people. We are called to represent Christ well while we are here, not the opposite. And look, if they hate us, then please hate us because we represent Christ so well, not because we represent Christ so poorly. But they were frauds, and they were hypocrites, and they had a general hostility in them towards all people. How sad is that? But most of all, they are contrary to all men. Why? Because sixth, look, they have hindered evangelism. Verse 16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. I mean, wow, how how sad is that? This reminds me of what happened on Paul's first missionary journey on Cyprus. You remember that? Barnabas, Paul, and Mark made their way to the city of Paphos, and there they met a couple of very interesting people. First was a sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was also called Elimus. Elimus was with the proconsul named Sergius Paulus. What was a proconsul? A proconsul was the Roman deputy who'd been appointed by the Roman Senate. So he was the governor, basically, of the island of Cyprus, And he was a very powerful man. But look, he didn't have the peace that only Jesus Christ can give. Now it seems that Elemas was the proconsul's personal sorcerer. Think about that. Since it was common for men in government to keep a sorcerer around. (laughs) To tell them whether the gods favored their actions. Wow. But I think Sergius Paulus knew that Elamus didn't have the answer to what he was truly looking for. No, all Elamus had for Sergius was emptiness. But but where can I find real peace? Where can I find real joy? Where can I find lasting hope beyond this short and fading life? Where can I find true salvation for my soul? Well, Elymas the sorcerer certainly didn't have the answer. And neither did any of the pagan religions that surrounded Sergius. That much was very clear. But these missionaries who've made their way into town, man, they have something different. They have truth. They have the truth of God. See, your answer isn't another person. Your answer isn't that drug or that empty man-centered false religion or more money or more people knowing who you are or a bigger house or a nicer car or losing weight or getting better self-esteem or traveling all around or your kids or your spouse or a better marriage or more friends, anything like that. No, no, your only answer, humanity's only answer is Jesus He alone can satisfy the hungry and thirsty soul. He alone can fill that void and give you true purpose, hope, joy, peace, and life. He alone can save your soul from hell and take you to heaven with him, Christ alone. And good news, Barnabas and Saul were able to meet with the governor of Cyprus and they preached the gospel to him. They preached the word of God to him. And it seems to be going quite well. And Sergius is soaking in the truth of what they are saying, and that's when Ellimus withstood them. Try to picture it. Barnabas and Saul are preaching the word of God, and Sergius is taking all of it in, amazed at the good news that he's hearing, and Ellimus is watching all of it happen, and he's not, that evil man is not liking it one bit. I think he realizes that if Sergius believes what these men are telling him, that that's gonna be bad for him and his job. But I also think it goes way deeper than that because to be able to do what he did, Elemis had to have been truly a wicked and evil man. Look, the word for sorcery means to be a magician by the use of witchcraft. It's more than sleight of hand and it's more than mere illusion, but rather this speaks of performing magical spells that harness occult forces and evil spirits to produce unnatural effects in the world. This is demonic. This is satanic. Talking about invoking Demonic powers, which obviously the Bible strongly condemns. So, Elymas was an evil man, a wicked man, and that's the real reason that he withstood Barnabas and Saul. And that's the reason why people withstand truth and, and Christ and Christianity today. So, on one side, you have the Word of God, the Gospel, the Good News which is able to save the soul of Sergius and which was proclaimed by Saul and Barnabas. And then on the other side, you have Elemas opposing the gospel and attempting to dissuade Sergius Paulus. I mean, it's a classic battle of spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. It's a classic clash of two kingdoms. And please don't forget that it's a clash that repeats every single time that we share the gospel. Someone once said, when you open heaven... You also open hell. And the battle's real. It's real. The church today is still in a battle for the minds and for the souls of men and women. The church has always faced and will always continue to face satanic opposition every time that the gospel is preached because it's penetrating into Satan's kingdom of darkness. So the enemies of the gospel try to keep the gospel away from people, and if they can't keep it away, then they try to ridicule, and they try to pressure people socially to keep people from committing their lives to Christ. And that's exactly... By the way, um, Sergius Paulus became a Christian, so good news. That's exactly what the Jews did, too, when Paul and his friends tried to preach the gospel to people, specifically to the Gentiles. He says forbidding us, hindering us, restraining us, doing their best to stop us. Same thing is going on today by the unbelieving world around us as we seek to share the good news of Christ to the lost. I remember one time I was invited by a lady in the church I was preaching in to go and share the gospel with her family, about 15 people in all. Of course, I went and shared the good news of Christ with them, but there was one person there who was a clear and obvious enemy of Christ And she did her best to hinder me from sharing the gospel. She interrupted me constantly. She argued with me about everything. She opposed me. She was truly an evil woman. And she did her work well, tool of Satan that she was. Well, Paul says that the unbelieving Jews were tools of Satan as they hindered him from preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. See, by their persistent opposition... The Jews deliberately sought to rob Gentiles of the salvation in Christ that they rejected for themselves. So they not only reject the gospel, but they do all they can to keep others from being saved as well. And that is very, 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 very serious. That's why he denounced the Jews here so passionately. Because of their sinful behavior. Look. Satan will do all he can to hinder people from hearing the good news of Christ that saves. And he has many people who will help him with that wretched and terrible mission. But we must not give him the victory. We must not give him the victory. No, we need to pray much and we need to seize every opportunity we can to share the gospel. And we must be bold and we must be strong instead of being fearful and afraid. Yes, the opposition abounds. This is what we signed up for. It's a battle. It's a spiritual battle. But we have the good news of Christ that the people desperately need to hear. And we are called to be faithful and to share that good news as much as we can with the lost around us like Paul did. Well, Paul gives two results for these unbelieving Jews who had withstood God and who have withstood the men of God. First, they fill up the measure of their sins. Well, that's serious. This is true not only for these unbelieving Jews, by the way. It's true for every non-believer as well. They fill up the measure of their sins. What does that mean? Fill up conveys the picture of the unbelieving Jews continuing to pile up their sins as in a great heap. But here's the thing. God sees and God knows. And one day, God will make it right and bring His righteous judgment on them unless they repent. So look, while punishment of the ungodly is often postponed, the saturation point is coming and we do well to recognize that truth. It makes you wonder how long God will be patient with America as we continue to push Him aside again and again and again and exalt sin. That is true foolishness because guess what? God's patience won't last forever. Have you been putting God off for another day? I've heard fools say this. I'm good. I'm just going to enjoy my sin for a while, and then before I die, I'll turn to Christ and get saved. I've heard that. There's so very much that's wrong with that. But think about this. How do you know when your last day is going to be? Tomorrow, hey, tomorrow you may be gone. Right now is the day of salvation. Today's the day to get serious about the Lord because tomorrow might never come. So stop playing around. Stop messing around. Stop being mediocre. Stop being lukewarm if you are. Stop refusing to share the gospel with your lost family. Stop wasting your life away. Wake up! Because today might be your last day. God's patience won't last forever. Second result. Wrath will come to them to the uttermost. (laughs) That's a reality for all who reject Christ as Lord and Savior, wrath to the uttermost. When we talk about God's wrath, we're not talking about someone with a bad temper who flies off the handle over the slightest irritation, no. Instead, God's wrath, orge, in the Greek, is part of God's holy nature. Orge is God's settled, determined act of opposition to all sin. If God loves righteousness, and He does, He must also hate evil, which He does. If God were all love and no wrath, then He wouldn't be God because He would be unrighteous. I mean, if a judge was all love and hugs towards cold-blooded murderers, then He would not be a righteous judge. And in like manner, God wouldn't be holy or good if He didn't react to evil with wrath and with righteous and holy judgment. So again, God's wrath is His holy hatred of all that's unholy. It's His righteous indignation at everything that is unrighteous and it's very real. John MacArthur says that God's wrath signifies the strongest kind of anger, that which reaches fever pitch when God's mercy and grace are fully exhausted. It will mark the end of God's patience and tolerance with unregenerate, unrepentant mankind and the swelling of his final furious anger, which he will vent on those whose works evidence their persistent and unswerving rebellion against him. That's, that's biblically correct. And it's a very real thing. Look, every sin, every sin ever committed in all of history demands punishment and every sin ever committed in all of history will indeed be punished by our holy righteous God. Here's the fact. Either you will pay will face God's wrath for your own sin because you've rejected Christ, which results in eternity in hell, you will pay up or else you are a true believer and Christ has taken all that wrath Onto Himself, which He paid for in full on the cross. It's one or the other. You will pay for your, the wages of your own sin in hell forever, or Christ paid your wages as a believer on the cross. The greatest revelation of God's wrath was when it was poured out in full force on the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, on the cross, so it wouldn't have to be poured out onto us who believe. But again... All who reject Christ as Lord and Savior will indeed face the wrath of God against sin by being eternally punished for that sin. That's why you need Jesus. And that's why you share Jesus with everyone that you can, so they can hear the good news and, and perhaps prayerfully respond in saving faith. These unbelieving Jews that Paul's writing about, they are in trouble unless they repent. And so is everyone who rejects Christ as Lord and Savior. May He use us to rescue many from this wrath. May we care for the many lost souls around us. And may we be serious about the eternal things of God. Because guess what? These are serious times. Lord, help us to be serious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to be serious people. Not to be playing around, toying with sin, exalting mediocrity, but serious about eternal things. Help us, Lord. Give us a good and godly conviction that ignites us, that motivates us to be godly men and women who earnestly share your truth to those around us. We love you. Help us to show that love by living for your glory with fervor. Bless us now. May we encourage one another in these great truths. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.